This show is supported by listeners like you at patreon.com slash Kevin Rothrock, where you can sign up to receive stickers or coffee mugs, depending on how much cold, hard cash you're willing to shell out. Hello there. Welcome back to The Russia Guy. I'm your host, Kevin Rothrock, and this is a podcast where I talk Russian news, politics, and culture. And I interview various journalists, academics, and activists who are doing interesting things in the field. On today's show, I'm talking to all three authors of a brand new book about Russian opposition figure Alexei Navalny. The book's title gives away the whole plot. Navalny, Putin's nemesis, comma, Russia's future, question mark. I'm reading aloud the punctuation. The authors of this excellent book are Jan Matidolbam, a postdoctoral researcher at Bremen University who specializes in activism and civil society in Russia, Morvan Lauet, a PhD candidate at the University of Kent, and Ben Noble, a lecturer in Russian politics at University College London. Now, without visual aids or theme music, which I considered but ultimately decided would just be too tedious for the listener, it's a bit hard at times to understand who is talking throughout this interview. Honestly, it doesn't really matter, I think, for the purposes of the conversation, but listen here to each of these scholars introduce himself and try to get a feel for their voices. Distinguishing between Jan and Morven might test you a little bit, if you're anything like me, but I have so much faith in you, my dear listeners. I'm Morven Lalouette, and I'm a PhD candidate in comparative politics at the University of Kent in the UK. Jan Mati Dolbal. Postdoctoral researcher at the University of Bremen. Ben Noble, lecturer in Russian politics at University College London. Okay, so that's today's three guests. One more time, here they are. Morvan Lalouet. Jan Mati Dolbal. Ben Noble. Our interview ran nearly an hour, so I won't spend any more time here on an introduction. Check your podcast audio player for chapter headers to skip to specific questions, and check buzzsprout.com for an automatically generated transcript. And don't laugh at all the inevitable transcription errors. There's a quote that that stood out to me in the book, and I'll just read it. Politics in Russia is far from dull and boring. Both the Kremlin and opposition adapt constantly. And so this is this is something of 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 your other work. I know that this is something of a refrain in some of your research that you know things aren't as as simple as they seem from the outside. It's not all just Putin, Putin, Putin. And so that that line that politics in Russia is not dull or boring or it's far from it. It was both something that I that, that didn't surprise me, but at the same time reading it. Part of me thought, like, well, of course, that's that's exactly what you know people in the know should be saying because people are always getting it wrong; they're oversimplifying it. But at the same time, having you know, reading the Russian news day in and day out, part of me was like, well, no, it is dull and boring. It's the same goddamn thing over and over again. Like, how can you tell me it's not dull or boring? It's it's yes, there are things happening behind the curtain and so on, but it's the same goddamn thing all the time. So, could you could you flesh out for me why? It, it, why you think it's it, 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 you think it's not dull and boring? I mean, a part of me I think knows the answer. And you're going to tell me about how there's a hidden agency that we don't appreciate. But w- I wonder, would you also agree to some degree that it, it is kind of dull and boring, just not maybe in the way people think? What do you, weigh in? Let me. What do you What do you guys think? It can be both, Kevin. <laughs> and that, of course, is the academic. I would say it depends. You can have this, and you can have that. Look, in terms of uh, the ultimate dull and boring feature of Russian politics, Putin has been around for more than 20 years. So that, of course, is dull and boring. But what we show in the book, and I think what the book really does well, if I can say that, 
uh, is we show how the Kremlin, and not just Putin, so I'm talking about the Kremlin, I mean the presidential administration, we could talk about that phrase, Kevin, separately, about whether it's a good phrase to use, but... I think I was misunderstood on Twitter. You're always ahead, misunderstood, Kevin, dearie me. <laughs> it's, it's the idea that the Kremlin has adapted to innovations that have been used by not only Putin, his team and his movement, but also other opposition figures. So we can see, for example, Team Navalny coming up with a technological way to expose corruption. And we can see quite quickly the authorities responding to that. And so there is dynamism in the system. My worry with uh, trying to refer to Russian politics uh, as a whole as dull and boring is that we don't get that sense of adaptability of sometimes the real uh, technical adaptability of some of the agents in the system. Yes, of course, we can look at the failures. We can look at Roscommonsor trying to uh, block um, various different social media and not, and not succeeding, but there are also other ways in which the Kremlin and the authorities more broadly have adapted to these uh, threats as they perceive them uh, to their existence. So that's one of the ways in which I think Russian politics isn't dull and boring. So perhaps uh, to, to just to summarize that, um, in order to keep it dull and boring, um, there has to be dynamism, right? In order to be able to um, continue what they've been doing um, in, the, in the political elite, um, what's visible from the outside, they have to be adaptable and flexible and creative. And that's the interesting thing that's usually getting lost when you just focus on what's dull and boring. Well, add two cents very quickly because otherwise you'll have uh, three times the same, not the same answer, but three times an answer and, and we won't get anywhere. But I think that, uh, and maybe this is stating the obvious, but, but uh, Alexei Navalny himself is one of the least boring character I've ever heard of. And, and I think what's, what I found interesting by writing that book is you, you, he started his career 20 years ago and, and you look at 20 years of politics in Russia and it's when, when you take that, that kind of semi-long-term perspective, let's say, it, it's incredible to see how, how much politics has changed. And in, in that framework, how much uh, uh, dynamism and, and innovation and, and new ideas, slogans, uh, etc. Alexei Navalny himself has brought. So, so the boring thing, of course, is that uh, yet uh, uh, the Kremlin always wins. So, so this is the boring stuff. So methodologically, I, I, I wanted to know, how did you divide the labor and... Uh, you know, like, were you in touch with the Navalny camp while you were writing this or any of his family while you're researching it? Can you, I know you're, you know, it's rigorous, rigorously sourced, but can you summarize for listeners, you know, like what generally, what sources did you turn to when writing this? And kind of finally, like how much of this, when you, like, how much of this was new to you as you, as you were writing it and researching it, and how much of it turned out to be kind of articulating what you already knew? Well, we did it all quite quickly. We did it in probably just under two months from agreeing to write it, getting the first contract. Yeah, it's it's, it's incredible. I, usually, you know, you, when I sit down and read a book, it's like, which I try to do as little as often because I'm very anti-intellectual. But, but when I do it, it's like, oh man, like this is like, I think I remember this from like seven years ago and now we're finally getting a book about it. But reading this book, it's like, whoa. Was, did, was I? Did we just tweet about this this yesterday or something? So very. Is it was in that sense? It's it was a very like unusual read for me. So I appreciated that a lot. Yeah, but what that was by design. We realised that getting the book out quickly was really important. Yeah. Having three of us meant that that was sort of feasible because we could, to a degree, work in parallel. So, for example, Jan took the lead on the protest chapter, given his research expertise. Morval took the lead on the politician chapter, given his expertise and the liberal opposition in Russia. As, but uh, as well as taking the lead on the chapters, we, of course, all signed off on all of the text. So it's a combination of specialization, but also we had endless Zoom calls to discuss sentences. We had endless WhatsApp messages. I think we've worked out that, you know, we've written three, three books in terms of WhatsApp messages. And so that, that's, that's the methodology. But also, you know, we wrote it quickly. Um, and that meant that this isn't a book that is based on lots and lots of new interviews with Navalny's team, Navalny's family. What we do is synthesize what's already out there, including what Navalny himself has said, including what his team members have said, but also including what his activists and supporters have said in interviews with Jan that he conducted between 2017 and 2021. 
we've synthesized all that material for a general audience. So, you know, it could be that for some of the listeners of this podcast who know Russia inside out, they might not come across lots of new stuff. Although I hope that they will. I, at least I learned a lot when writing the book. Um, whether it just be some basic facts that I've forgotten or never come across, or some of the analysis that we include that I would hope would be original. In terms of new stuff, I think, yeah, Ben has, ben has um, summarized it well, and, and we, we were uh, thinking it, it's more important to include voices that haven't yet had a chance to be heard, um, you know, rather than focusing on uh, the many, many interviews that Navalny and his, his um, core staff have given, um, we were focusing then when we were working with interviews um, with those uh, that, that, that we have from, from my fieldwork in Russia with people who usually don't make it um, on, on the news. So um, there will be lots of quotes from people um, from, the, from the Russian regions, both supporters from Navalny, uh, Navalny's um, team, but also other activists who are perhaps a little bit more critical. There will be, we imagine, lots of books coming out on Navalny uh, by people who do have that personal connection. And those people wanting that personal, that personal connection, they won't get it from our book. Uh, but hopefully they realise the nature of our book and sort of the gap that it's, that it's plugging. And we really look forward to reading those other books that are in the pipeline because they will provide new insight. We definitely do not think we are the final word. Of course we're not. But we hope that we have, as I say, filled that particular need to explain on the surface this really complex figure to an audience, especially outside of Russia, um, given that the media coverage of him, especially when he was poisoned and then returned to Russia, did become so black and white. I don't think that's a characterization. I don't think it's a straw man. There was lots of it that was saying, Navalny is this white knight returning to the evil Putin to slay the dragon, you know, and, and because it had that. Uh, moral framing, it then led to really, really awkward situations like when Amnesty International designated him a prisoner of conscience, then they withdrew it, then they gave it back. People uh, used to this very black and white media commentary will have been thinking and were thinking, what on earth's going on? And I was getting lots of questions from people. What's going on? Can you recommend a book? There isn't a book, so we wrote the book. And hopefully the book can make sense of the complexity um, and, you know, in terms of methodology, the most basic way in which we do that is split Navalny's life up into three ways, not chronologically, but we look at him as an anti-corruption activist, a politician and a protest leader. I assume you've all looked at the, or read or whatever, the, the New York Times interview that Navalny did. And, and um, one of the things that stood out to me about that was he has this line about 30% of the country having effectively no political representation. And he's, he specifically singles out the educated kind of urban urbanites or whatever. In your book, you make a, you, you specifically say, you know, that, that uh, his appeal is, is broader than that, that he has actually managed to kind of bridge this supposed divide between the cities and the, and the, the regions as they're, as they're known. Does he not understand this? Because based on what he's saying in the New York Times interview, it seems to be saying he's. The, the, for, well, I read that and I like, oh, that's why he's kind of spun back to liberalism and abandoned the whole nationalism thing. Is because he's like, well, actually, I guess you know, Givlinsky's old and gray enough that I can s slip in here and be the new liberal guy. And you know, enough with all this like broad appeal. Like we're just going to stick with the cities after all. Whereas you you read your book and you're like, well, hold on, he was actually he was something new. He was you know he's breaking beyond all this. So. I guess the question is, do you think Navalny doesn't understand the broadness of his own appeal, or is this just another thing he says, and next year, or, you know, tomorrow, or whatever, he's going to talk about how it's not the urbanites, it's everybody, and so on. I mean, like, how much do we read into this? Well, I think one answer to this is um, to look at who he's talking to. Here he's talking to the New York Times. <laughs> and then that makes a difference, because uh, because he's, he's being um, talked to in a framework that you know, that is all about political representation of different groups, right? Mm -hmm. That is what the, what the U.S. reader understands. Um, but that isn't necessarily what's so relevant for Russia at the moment. And Navalny has been really um, strategic in navigating between these two different uh, political worlds, I think. And um, in terms of, you know, when it comes to throwing out Putin, then I think he's really aiming for broad social appeal that would include people other than the educated urbanites. Um, but that is stage one in, in, what, in their own terminology. And stage two would then be 
um, him finding an electorate that is more, you know, circumscribed to a, to a more specific type of audience. And I think that is the audience that he's talking to and that he's talking about in this, in this New York Times interview. That would be, you know, a liberal oriented, um, perhaps market oriented um, audience that is, of course, currently lacking proper representation in, in Russia. Um, but that would also be uh, lacking proper representation if we had a, a democracy in Russia now and the, and the, the party system would be as it is. So uh, that, that's, one, that's one take on that. Yeah, and I think I would add that, of course, I mean, Navalny speaks about this audience, I think, because he comes from that audience. And, and also, I think that uh, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's who he is. He is a, a big city, urbanized, uh, educated. And, and I think that uh, from what I understand when, when he talks about strategy, I think this, 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 I don't see much doubt that in their minds, uh, uh, this is the core constituency that, that's, and they're going for the, for the, for their core constituency for the low hanging fruit. But I think what makes Navalny interesting is that he's, he's always tried to broaden his appeal. And it's something that you find constantly, uh, from the beginning of, of his career, even if you look at, started speaking for himself, he was in Yabloka, is that idea that no, we don't want to remain in that liberal ghetto, uh, uh, just saying, oh, we're the party of the intelligentsia, things that people in Yabloka can say. And, and. Clearly, Navalny doesn't want to represent only these people. And uh, I think that this is something that is really, if you look at what are the, the, the core of Navalny's thinking and Navalny's strategizing over the years, over now almost 20 years, this is something that, that, that is kind of constant. That I think that also explains his, his ventures into nationalism that he then abandoned for, for uh, we can maybe discuss about that later. But uh, yeah, I think this is some, some constant. If you look at that ever shifting reality that we're talking about of Russian politics, politics of Navalny himself, that's, I, I would say, one of the constants. Jan mentioned stage one and stage two, and I think that's really worth underlining because it can make sense of quite a lot of the complexity, just being on the outside. Stage one, as Jan said, is topple the Putin regime. Stage two is the arrival of quote-unquote normal politics. So you have a consolidated liberal multi-party democracy. And one of, I think, the insights that the book presents is um, uh, what people are thinking on the ground, the activists in the regions who aren't necessarily fan people of Navalny. They might, you know, people will speak about the cult of personality of Navalny. Yes, that might apply to some people, but a really large proportion of people just see him as a vehicle, an instrument, somebody to succeed in stage one. And then when it comes to stage two, they might not touch Navalny with a barge pole because they have their other party, their other person, their other figurehead. And we shouldn't, we shouldn't lose sight of that, that, you know, there can be a much broader set of people willing to, for example, go out onto the streets, as we saw at the beginning of this year, when Navalny returned, people who said, well, I don't really agree with Navalny. I don't agree with the past statements that he's made that I think are racist, but he's the best person positioned now to topple the regime, even though, of course, now that seems um, highly unlikely. So there are lots of people that can form that broad, broad coalition and then really an indication of Navalny's success if he ends up being marginalized in stage two because he's created the conditions for other people to arise and other people to support different political parties. Yeah, I think, I mean, the, the, one of the, I think one of the wittiest things in the book is this notion that you, you turn on its head the idea that Navalny is manipulating the masses, which is, you know, the accusation that the authorities and the media typically throw at him. And you say, well, actually, it's really, it's more the other way around that they're all using him to sort of get to this normal state of politics. Um, that, that was, that was pretty, that's pretty sharp. I like that in the book. One question I had in terms of Navalny's kind of base or his his uh, audience. You call specifically regarding his his position on Crimea. You call it a middle ground between liberals and nationalists, which I think is you know that's pretty accurate um, in terms of what would be in the middle of of liberals and, and and nationalists, so to speak. But in terms of kind of popular perceptions nationwide, it seems to me that he is definitely more closer to the liberals than he is to sort of what might be described as the mainstream. And so, I guess. You know, on one hand, we have kind of this picture of Navalny as this common sense politician, maybe even flirts with populism at times, depending on how you define it. Uh, but it seems that ultimately, if, if you step back 
kind of outside of just the anti-Kremlin opposition, and you kind of look at it from a, a sort of mainstream or, or kind of nationwide perspective, he still is pretty darn close to the, to the liberals, which is, I guess, what we've we've kind of been talking about already. But that almost makes it seem like, you know, he's he's only a populist if you compare him to like these kind of like total liberal elitists. But but uh, if, if you compare him kind of, if you look at him from a broader perspective, he's still closer to the elitist and to the liberals than he is to say like Joe Schmo or Ivan Ivanovich or whatever. Is that is that a fair com- characterization? Or would you say that no, he is in fact quite middle ground and moderate? Or is, is, is that really only within this kind of like niche opposition? Well, I... I'd say that I, I think that this sounds like a fair characterization to me. And I think we get back to the, what we're saying before is that that's who he is. He is from the middle class. He is from uh, the biggest city in Russia, the capital. And uh, I think that his his ventures a bit in, in nationalism were also at the time quite far from what would be the middle ground in Russia, which is having nostalgia for the Soviet Union, being... Uh, what what has been called quickly red brown? Namandi was never red brown. Uh, red brown. He when he was trying to be a nationalist, when he was a nationalist, he was already attracted by Western models of liberalism, and he was looking at what's going on in Western Europe at the time, success, which is basically fit, successful far right parties in Europe. And I think that he he was never tempted with national Bolshevism, with uh, Eurasianism, with with or even with that. That which, in my view, is kind of the middle ground of Russian society, which is that kind of nostalgia for the Soviet Union, uh, that idea that the West is bad and it's, it doesn't like us. Navalny is clearly, to me, somebody who is Western-oriented. He's clearly, well, he's lived in the U.S., he's been to Yale, he's, uh, I think, full of Western culture. He watches uh, Rick and Morty. I don't know what that is, but that's still an American thing. <laughs> so I think that, yeah, I think socially and ideologically, he is quite far from the, the middle ground in Russia. But still, he is trying not to lose uh, uh, contact with that. And he's aware of that, I think, in order to, to and this, we get back to that idea of, of, of reaching out, you know, beyond beyond Moscow, beyond big cities. And I think that he's aware of that, but uh, probably it's not that uh, simple to do when you are a Westernizer, when you say that Europe is the model, that uh, Russia is a European country. It's, uh, that's, I think, one of the big political contradictions that he, that he embodies right now. Can I add a point on, on strategy, perhaps? Because um, uh, when I've been talking to his um, regional um, activists, the people who lead or led uh, his regional offices, um, they usually told me when I asked them about what don't you perhaps like about uh, Navalny's agenda, then several of them mentioned Crimea and thought he's not tough enough on uh, Putin for uh, for the annexation of Crimea. So, so they're, even, they're even more liberal than, than he is. Yes. Yeah. So I think him not being, um, you know, he, he retaining many elements of, of the liberal agenda um, is also because um, he doesn't want to lose the liberals as activists and as supporters. Right? He, um, the, the the regional offices were really operated by um, uh, by people you would you would find in other liberal movements um, more so than they were by you know communist activists or, or other or other people. Although they were there too, but you know I found I found the activists generally to be more liberal than the supporters. What, what we see in the survey. This all relates to something that you very often come across, which is why, you know, bother writing a book about somebody who, according to the latest Levada poll that I saw, has 14% approval in the country. Now, we can, of course, discuss the fact that those are approval ratings in a country in which the media is very much state-dominated, and so you get a picture of Navalny being a CIA stooge. But even if... Everybody's afraid to share their real opinion with pollsters or whatever. All of that, so, 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 all of that stuff. Even if, though, we were to assume that actually 14% of Russians, uh, only, quote, unquote, only 14% of Russians supported Navalny, that isn't an argument to say that he's not significant. Uh, his significance doesn't have to be only if he were going to be a viable challenger to Putin if there were a presidential election on Sunday. And yet we often see that narrative from certain quarters. People say, why on earth are you paying attention to this minority um, political figure um, that really you should only pay attention to somebody who has approval ratings above 50%, which I imagine only now relates to Vladimir Putin. 
and, and, you know, again, tying it back to the stage one, stage two, we can look at the significance of somebody who is the best placed person to challenge the current regime and then acknowledge that they're going to be a minority candidate in a quote-unquote normal political setting. So I think hopefully the book can say it's important to look at Navalny, even if a minority of Russians approve of his actions. Pivoting from the subject of elections, I wanted to talk a bit about smart vote or smart smart voting. Do you trans? You translated as smart vote or smart voting? Smart voting. Smart voting. Right. So smart voting. But there is uh, there are a couple of uses of smart vote. Yeah, there's a spoiler. The spoiler initiative. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. So for listeners who are listening, the, 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 what is it? It's it's umnaya uh, golosavanya, right, in Russian, and so. So you write that the goal of of smart voting, Navalny's project, um, is to divide the elites. Do you think that there's any evidence that that he's succeeded in doing that? Because this is this is like a, an issue I have with with the smart voting project, I, which is the, the the caveat would be that it's a you know bold project that has been under an enormous stress, and there's been hackers attacking its databases, and and you know you can, you can only hold the the tech people so so accountable, given that the, you know they just they're they've been expelled from the country essentially, and they're just under enormous enormous stress, and so there's a lot of criticism of oh like you know like uh, Volkov and the others have like mismanaged it, but I think that can only go so far given just like what they're up against. But the let's, so outside of just like the implementation, the 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 theory behind it, right, is that they're 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 directing voters to the candidate they've they've decided based on this and that is the most likely to defeat either the United Russia candidate or the one that is you know backed by United Russia, the the kind of the author, the candidate of the authorities. Um, and this is this is kind of an extension, as you point out in the book, this is an extension of kind of like the you know vote against the party of crooks and thieves uh, uh, strategy that Navalny advocated in 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 twenty twenty. 10, 2011. Um, and he's kind of fluctuated. He's gone back and forth between, you know, boycott it because there's no genuine opposition allowed and vote for the the least, you know, pro-authority candidate. And he kind of goes back and forth in this. And, you know, we're in a swing right now where he's saying vote for the the one who's not the most authority-backed candidate. And maybe, you know, next time it'll be the other way around or whatever. But in terms of the the logic of this, to divide the elites, do you think that smart voting is is either capable of doing it or is there evidence that they've achieved this in the past or is it really just the authorities are just too damn strong they're always going to either they'll just recruit the guy that wins or they're already they're already playing they're holding the strings to all the puppets anyway what's what's your what's your take on the kind of like the the logic and the effectiveness of it i'd say it first and then maybe you can pick up on this i think that this one of the goals is to divide the elites uh i think that the the most even before that, the most basic goal is to go on doing politics in Russia today, which is an extraordinarily difficult thing to do when uh, you can't protest, you can't participate in elections, and uh, basically you can't do anything. So I think that even before discussing the potential effects of, of, uh, of uh, smart voting, uh, the, 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 the most obvious goal to me is to continue being relevant when you can't relevant or even just active in a situation where, where, where you can't, uh, uh, basically the, the window of opportunity is being extremely tidy. So this is the first thing. And then maybe my, my co-authors want to uh, pick up on the, on the elite point, uh, uh, that, that you mentioned. Yeah. So I think in, in the idea of Volkov and, and the Navalny people, dividing elites would be a second step in this whole smart voting idea, because it would be a result of um, increasing increasing shares of parties that are not in Russia in, in parliaments, right? So the first step would be bring other deputies to the parliaments. And we have actual evidence that this can work. There have been studies, um, you know, academic studies, including that show at least for St. Petersburg, 
that this had um, a you know a robust effect on um, those candidates who were actually recommended by this by this app or by this system. So it can work um, to bring more deputies into the parliaments, and then once people see that this can work, then the second step can uh, can take action. Then because then people who consider, am I going to run for United Russia? Am I going to run for, for a different party? Might reconsider. And that's the idea, sort of the long-term idea behind this smart voting project, that people in the region's political elites who usually thought that it's a, a, it's a blank check into the governing structures to just campaign on the a United Russia ticket, to perhaps now re- reconsider that and, and think perhaps it's not so secure anymore. Perhaps I should take a different party. And try try my luck then uh, that way, and and that would sort of then um, start to divide elites when a, a significant number of people um, make that calculation. And I don't think there's evidence of that yet. Perhaps uh, we we don't know. You know, Volkov claims that in the regions that they have been approached by many people um, to be included in the recommendations of smart voting. We don't know if that's true. It might be true. And um, but what we what we know is that there is evidence for the first step that it can actually help you know be the, bring bring people other than united russia candidates to the parliament and then sort of the calculation might work or might not work and what i think what we can also uh, uh, look at is that what what happened in moscow for example where clearly you had more vocal uh, uh candidates that were elected that are trying to do things it's it's uh, but even you know if it's just the Speech by a communist deputy in the in the city Duma of Moscow. It's something that didn't exist before, and and you could also prove that this is having an effect by the fact that these people are being repressed in uh, too. So it also shows whether I mean, in any case, I think that when discussing Russian politics right now, we need to lower expectations a lot. And I think that uh, uh, when you just Look at yeah, some deputies who are vocal against some scandals in Moscow, who then being are being repressed. It pretty much shows that something is happening. Of course, is it going to topple Putin tomorrow? I don't think so. But uh, as I said, yeah, I'm 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 from the party of uh, lowering expectations in order to to judge what what's uh, happening. That's a somehow less less inspiring title than Prakasnaya Russia Bulgaria, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> the party of lower expectations. Yeah, we we didn't know that the Morboy is actually Navalny two point zero. He's getting ready to man to man the barricades. Not that Navalny ever really made the barricades. But no, what I was just going to add something. Uh, a quick point onto what Jan and Morboy have just said, and saying another way to frame the influence of smart voting is to try and tilt the balance for those parties that are currently regarded as being systemic opposition to being non-systemic. So to try and embolden those voices that we often regard, talk about as being co-opted. So, you know, deputies in the Communist Party. And, uh, and that can happen a number of ways. And one of them can be that if these electoral candidates think that they could get smart voting backing, then there might be incentives to them to say things that are maybe slightly more controversial um, to get the, you know, the seal of approval insofar as it really counts as that from Team Navalny in the run-up um, to the vote. And then after the vote, if the Communist Party gets more seats in the Duma or in regional legislatures or in um, uh, local councils, then that can give them a sense, actually, we might have a political future um, in being less co-opted by the Kremlin, and so they can shift from big systemic to non-systemic. So I think that's another way in which we can frame it, having an impact. You know, talking about splits within the elite, that sounds quite mega and existential. <laughs> and that, of course, is the long-term plan. Mm-hmm. But if we're lowering expectations of being realistic, I think smart voting from the start has been very much about small steps, incremental gains, and then hopefully the, the hope for, for Team Navani is that it snowballs into something else. One thing I noticed about this book is, on one hand, it seems like, you know, you as the authors are kind of, you you first introduce yourselves as sort of scholarly outsiders, and, you, and you're kind of, you say to the reader, you know, we're going to permit ourselves to entertain questions that Navalny's own supporters would probably just denounce out of hand as kind of, you know, like the regime's attempts to smear him. Like, we're going to get into it, and, you know, like, we're, we're not at the barricades, 
although I guess we're starting parties. <laughs> um, we're not at the barricades. Uh, and so, you know, we, we can, we're going to have a kind of academic conversation here. Mm-hmm. Um, but then on the other hand, while reading the book, it seemed like a, a, you, you hedge a lot of what might be the more critical observations about about Navalny's politics or his his leadership. For instance, like, you know, you, you, you point out that the the movement fails to kind of reflect the democratic spirit of his values internally, right, this, in terms of its structure and so on. But then you kind of, you know, you also chalk it up to the kind of like logistical pressures of, of the kind of Kremlin's kind of like creeping authoritarianism. And so I, I, I wonder, are there any outright mistakes or or just kind of failures of, of planning and implementation that you would attribute to Navalny and his movement directly that you wouldn't also then say actually it's also it's really just you know the result of the kremlin's control and manipulations like has navalny just screwed anything up that uh as a as an objective outsider you could say yeah well that's look at that right there you messed that up that was that wasn't that was not so smart it's a very difficult question i'm going to begin by not answering it and say that yes we we um, identify ourselves as academics, but we hope that this isn't written as an academic book. It's written for a general audience, and hopefully it's not like sure. picking up an academic textbook. I meant academic in the best sense Thank of the you, word. Kevin. Just Thank the you, m- Kevin. <laughs> so as long as the readers are put off, you know, I've been told, I'm, I've been right, reliably informed that this is an engaging read. Um, you know, we, you know we, we, wanted it to, we wanted it to be accessible. In terms of mistakes, yeah. you know, the fudge answer, answer is that maybe if you're looking for us to give um, uh, an evaluation of Navalny, an objective evaluation, you're probably not going to get it because we didn't see our role as judging him and his movements. It's cataloging what they've done, trying to provide some synthesis, but it's not giving them a scorecard out of 10 saying, you know, in 2014, they got three things right and five things wrong. But I don't know, maybe Anna okay. will have a more satisfactory response. Catalog- well, ca- catalog his mistakes for me then. So just to pick up on your example, the um, perhaps somewhat authoritarian leadership of the movement itself. Um, it's not supposed to sound in the book as though we are um, justifying that approach. Sure. It's, it's rather presenting, you know, voices who, from, from, the, from the movement itself, who sort of criticize it at the same time, um, stay with the movement um, because they realize um, that perhaps the, the larger goal is the more important one rather than having a, you know, realizing a, a super democratic thing um, within a very authoritarian context. And we should first get rid of the authoritarian context. And after that comes super democratic thing. Um, you know, that's a re- that some, some activists say that. Um, it's not that, that, in- that justifies the approach. And I'm not, I'm not in a position to say, um, that would be certainly a counterfactual thing to say, right? And it's very difficult, um, a, a difficult claim to make. Had he have been more democratic in his approach to his, to, his, uh, to his movement, would that have been the better strategy? Perhaps not. Would that have been the morally preferable option? Perhaps yes, right? Um, the question is what the goal is, um, to, to answer the question what the, what the mistake was, right? And um, I don't think... Strategy-wise, it was a mistake. Um, morally, it could be, right? And the same goes for the nationalism, obviously. Um, you know, uh, I don't approve of these statements. Um, I, you know, if, if I read them uh, or, or similar things from other people, I, I, you know, I, um, I find that abhorrent, right? But, um, and, and so, again, morally, I don't, you know, and probably my co-authors don't like that either. Um, Strategy-wise, that's perhaps a more interesting question than the democracy um, in his own movement, because I don't really see why he doesn't apologize for those statements more forcefully. You know, um, he could at least, you know, um, do it and see what happens. Do it in, do it in English. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. So that, exactly. That would be addressing an outside audience more than, and more than the Russian audience, perhaps. And that's perhaps yeah. precisely why he doesn't care so much about it. Mm-hmm. But again, we're not sort of in a position to judge whether that would help his cause in any way. Just going to add a quick point that I think that uh, we all share this kind of point of view that we all live in the West. We live uh, relatively comfortable lives. And I think it's, uh, at least speaking for myself, it's extremely complicated for me on a personal level to say 
oh, that was wrong, or they should have done this. It's 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 an extremely challenging and difficult environment, and I and 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 uh, I can't possibly it's I can't possibly put myself in their shoes because I'm not, and I'm I live in a reality that is extremely far from them. I think that's that's also maybe why we always try to look at at, at different different angles, at least speaking for myself, and and not providing. This, this kind of moral political judgments like this is a failure or or nationalism is bad right oh uh, yeah i think the book does a good job too of of reminding readers that you know he's he's playing to this audience and it's not necessarily your audience and the, you know it's 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 i think that you you do you have there's you treat that really well in, in in the book i guess like my question has less to do with kind of where is he ethically you know wrong or whatever because obviously like he says this she says that like it doesn't i mean everybody can disagree about that i mean everybody disagree about everything but whatever but strategically in terms of like what he says he wants to do and what he then does i guess like i, I would like to know if um what you make of his decision to to return and this is not to anything this has nothing to do with ethics because obviously neither none of us as far as i know have returned to an authoritarian country to be jailed knowing would probably happen and became a kind of like you know um <laughs> international hero um so we we don't really stand on the same ground in those regards so to 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 speak of the the morality or ethics of that is not really for us to do um but in terms of like this the strategy of of the decision to return and then more importantly i think what his team then decided to do, presumably having previously consulted with Navalny, to kind of rule out these protests, maybe to try to get him freed, but then also saying, well, actually, the, it's going to be our international lobbying that's going to do that, which also doesn't seem to have you know, gone anywhere. It seems to me that that, that you know, they may have had very realistic ex- expectations of like the worst case scenario, but calling people out for these protests that for... I mean, it seems to me like they expected more either from their support base or they expected less crackdown from the authorities, and they were they were wrong. They they messed up. Do you think that that? And this is, has nothing to do with the ethics of it. The ethics they're on the they're they're shining. They've got halos. They're doing great stuff. But in terms of just the strategy of what they thought would happen or what they hoped would happen, it didn't pan out. They kind of rolled the dice and they, they then they lost. Is, do you agree with that assessment? Or do you think no, no, no? You know the, they were doing. They had. They were working with this, and the the alternatives were. And this is what I've heard time and time again: is that Navalny would have become Kasparov, or even or maybe Hudorkovsky, and people would have hated him even more, and he would have just faded into oblivion, and all of his supporters would have you know at every they would have just start smack talking him because he's a coward and so on. It would have failed. It would have been he he took the least of the worst options. You know, you you've obviously you've you've, you've written a book about his, his the three facets of his public life and and you know you're you're deep in his head, so to speak. What do you what do you think of uh, of the kind of the strategy, not the ethics, but the 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 strategy of his grand grand return and what's happened since? Because this that's the story today. The story today is the collapse and the the, the you know the extermination of his movement. And I feel like it's time. You know, can you give me kind of a post mortem? It was definitely one of the questions that I got most frequently when he went back to Russia at the beginning of this year. Why on earth would he do it? Doesn't make sense. He's going to be locked up. Um, uh, so why would anybody who's sane do it? And hopefully from the book, I'm not saying that we uh, showed that Navalny is insane because he's clearly not. He thinks about things. He strategizes. But you also get a picture of his character and his dogged determination and he uh, uh, didn't leave Russia by choice. You know, he took off from Tomsk, hoping to get to Moscow, uh, but he was poisoned. He wasn't even conscious. So he was, when he so left. He was unconscious. Yeah. He was he was taken. He was taken out of the country um, without his permission. So you know, going back to Moscow, being in this year, he was just completing that play trip that he started on the twentieth of August, twenty twenty. He also realizes that if you're trying to be a Russian politician outside of Russia, you're quickly marginalized, and it feeds into the narrative. That the authorities have that he is a fifth columnist. Uh, so we have, we have, you know, it's really complicated. And so it's not as if it's as simple as saying he made a strategic error in returning. Another thing that complicates it is that I don't think anybody foresaw the degree to which his movement would be um, destroyed. The extent of the repression against the movement, I think, is surprising to everybody. And that might be why other members of the team are leaving the country. Because, you know, things have changed. Yes, they knew that Ivani might be put behind bars. But perhaps they um, thought that the movement would be, would be more viable. So I suppose the 
general point of that is that it's really tricky to come uh, to conclusions about strategic mistakes when the field, you know, the battleground itself, the battlefield is changing. The authorities are adapting. It's not as if we have a monolithic Kremlin and Navalny and opposition actors can try things out and we can evaluate them against this sort of static um, uh, Kremlin. No, the Kremlin is adapting. And so something that might be strategically sensible at time A, at time B looks really, really, really not sensible. But that's, you know, we're, we're making that evaluation with the benefit of hindsight. And so I'd be really reluctant to say that Navalny made a mistake by returning to Russia. Just one tiny bit to add, um, which is the, the fact that he returned also obviously produced news and those news um, are information about the Russian regime and its character. And that might have been part of the strategy of returning, right? So because um, it has been part of Navalny's strategy before, when he ran for president in 2018, he knew pretty well that he would not be ending up on the ballot. And he did it anyway not just to use the opportunity to, to build his movement and to build a, net, a network across the country, which he did, but also to demonstrate again that this is an authoritarian regime that will not allow people on the ballot who have a decent chance of winning against the authoritarian regime. And um, that is a piece of information that is important in and of itself to produce something, a signal to the population that this is actually what your regime does. And this is why you shouldn't support it any for any any further. And that is a similar thing he did here, um, forcing uh, the regime that had, you know, hope perhaps that he would remain outside the country after the failed assassination attempt, force that regime to imprison him to get rid of him, and thereby to show very clearly that this is a regime that deals with its challengers in precisely this way. Is there anybody else that you see that deserves a book like this? I mean, I know so much of this book has to do with uh, treating Navalny as kind of this placeholder for the normal Russia to come, if it were to come, and that people are kind of like using him, they're using him to, you know, challenge the, to open up the political space and challenge the regime and so on. Do you see anybody else? I mean, presumably while you're researching Navalny, you're not just kind of meeting his, his, his colleagues and allies, but you're, 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 you're seeing other people kind of on the periphery of his movement and also kind of, you know, doing different things to challenge the, the status quo and so, and so on. Do you think that, is, is there any single individual that stands out to you that, that, that could, that could, you know, fuel a book, another book just like this? And then kind of another question to attach, attach to that. Do you think that that kind of, the, the, the kind of future of the opposition, does it, does it come from somebody within the Navalny movement or is it the Navalny movie itself kind of without an individual figurehead or is it just something totally different? Like what's kind of like, you, you rub your crystal ball a bit and tell me like what's coming next? Because it seems like the Navalny era, at least until he's, something big happens with him, whether it's freedom or death, he, we're kind of done with that for now, it seems. Yeah, there isn't a Navalny 2.0 wasting in the waiters. That's really clear. And it might be that, you know, Leonid Volkov is taking steps to try and fill that role, but I think there are lots of question marks as to whether that would be possible. Um, there are other people like uh, Lyubov Sobe, uh, who are the, you know, the members of Navalny's team who people are aware of, but for whatever reason, they just don't have the X factor that Navalny has. Yeah, I'm not saying that they can't develop it, but, you know, Navalny took many, many years to develop this skill set, to develop this profile. So the idea that one of them would magically find that, that, that formula quickly, um, I think is doubtful. So going forward, the team... They're both emigres now too. So. Well, outside of Russia, um, although Sobel, I think that's still, there's a question mark there. But anyway, yeah. anyway, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. The, I think going forward, the team haven't really made clear what their plans are after the September elections. The focus on the moment is on smart voting. But we're likely to see them, you know, carry out a collective Navalny, so them occasionally doing their own videos, being individual faces. And it could be that moving forward, you know, that's the story more broadly, that with the opposition in Russia, rather than having this really high-profile single figure, the, the real story, um, the real subject of a second book, not that I'm pitching a second book right now, uh, maybe I am, is to look at the smaller voices, the individual voices that are much more in, in the localities that are carrying on, in a sense, Navalny's battle, but not under the brand of Navalny. Yep, that's, that's certainly one direction in which um, 
we might be looking for future projects. I myself would also be very interested in the role of the Communist Party and perhaps a changing role of it. Um, because some people of Nawani's uh, movement are, are perhaps turning towards, towards that party as the least systemic of the systemic um, alternatives in the position. It's also a big question what happens to that party once the actual living communists, uh, you know, the people from the actual Soviet era have kind of died off, right? Because is the party going to fade into oblivion or are they going to revitalize somehow? I think the, the few studies or numbers that, that we have on that is sh show that um, their electorate has been shifting already towards the it, it precisely the um, urban, the educated urbanites that we talked about earlier. And that might be an indication that it perhaps uh, there is a second era for this party in, uh, in, our, in the future. Who knows? Yeah. And then, I mean, everybody talks about the succession of Putin, but there's also a very important succession in the wings. We don't know if we will see it, when we'll see it, but be, will happen at some point is the succession of uh, Gennady Zuyanov, who has been leading the party for about close to 30 years, I think. And, uh, um, yeah, you don't usually think about that, but he's, he's actually, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, uh, he's, uh, of the hooks, <laughs> the, the, the Western press about, uh, about this. And I think that, uh, when you look at, uh, even from afar at what ha is happening around Kaperev today, you see people that are trying to, it seems very difficult. It seems like a very and very difficult to, to, to move it. But you see people who are trying to use that brand, who are trying to also sometimes to get rid of that old side Stalinist uh, uh, thing that's uh, uh, maybe not the most uh, adapted to the urban electorate or, or things like that. But this is something that I think that is clearly something to watch. And, and especially since when you look at it, the, the electorate, the numbers of, of KPRF are still pretty impressive. And uh, it's still a party that manages to mobilize people uh, uh, and uh, that manages in some cases to get elected in regions or, or in cities. So I think that's, uh, that's definitely maybe the Navalny 2.0 will be a communist, who knows. That's my interview with the three authors of the completely new book, Navalny, Putin's Nemesis, Russia's Future, question mark. I'm going to try to read that. Navalny, Putin's Nemesis, Russia's Future? That's it. I think that's, that's how I ought to have read it in the beginning. Check the description of this podcast episode for a hyperlink to go buy that book. It's a very smooth read. I highly recommend it. Thank you for listening, everybody. And extra thanks to those of you contributing to the show at patreon.com slash Kevin Rothrock. Monthly and annual contributions are very welcome. They help me pay for the audio software subscriptions that make this show possible and sounding so good. Thanks again. Until next time. Погадать на короля. Ой-ля-ля, ой-ля-ля. 